Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric. I'd like to welcome you to Double Feature. I'm here with Michael Kester. Hello, I am also here. We're going to cover the Grand Budapest Hotel and The Fall today on Double Feature. These are two films um, that really don't go together in a lot of ways, but in like the important ways they do, in that they are films and you should watch two instead of one at any given opportunity. You undersell yourself on this. You're like, of course, it's a good double feature. They are films, and there are two. That's those are the requirements, <laughs> right? Is that can I go? <laughs> Look, I mean, I can hit you with stuff on this. They are auteur double features. They are intensely visual. These mm-hmm. are very much about telling their own stories. They both even have the the silly fucking sandwiching the movie Cute within other device. things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on. <laughs> You did great, Michael. You did great. I will hit up patreon.com forward slash double feature. I'll go on there. I'll type a message. I'll be like, you did great. I'll be like, did you really do the sell on the show? Tell me if that was actually in here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll get some answers. You can get answers on patreon.com forward slash double feature. You can also keep the show alive. And if you like Wes Anderson, um, I don't know, maybe we'll turn you off. So I want to talk a little bit about Wes Anderson. Because so Wes Anderson, uh, I'm just gonna just in case, just if this is the first time you've ever heard of movies, Wes who Wes Anderson directed uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, he also directed maybe like, you're British, maybe you've never heard of Wes Anderson. Right? Uh, he also directed. Um, let's see, I'll just do like a quick Machine Gun, um, Bottle Rocket, which kind of doesn't count, and then uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, Life Aquatic, Rushmore, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which we did on the show, Isle of Dogs, which we did on the show, Moonrise Kingdom, which we did on the show. Um, recently, he did the uh, the French Dispatch. That's 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 a that's a Wes Anderson. Um, I feel like I'm missing one, but maybe I'm not. Um, and the Grand Budapest Hotel was kind of like at the time. Uh, it was like his crowning achievement, which I feel like these directors, these like intense auteurs, we'll talk about this on the next movie too, for sure. But these intense auteurs like put out their inglorious bastards and then go, okay, well, I guess I have to keep making movies. I don't know what I'm going <laughs> to. Um, so the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, I hold very strongly that it is, in my opinion, the best Wes Anderson movie. It is not my favorite, but it is the best Wes Anderson movie. But all so so if you have seen any of these movies, uh, you probably understand that as a director, Wes Anderson is, as you mentioned, intensely visual, very, very, very particular about things like color palette, about uh, camera placement. He likes to do his goofy little pans to make jokes. Oh yeah, the movements, you know. Yeah. And it's all, um, it's, it's these like fiercely intentional, it's almost like, um, I, I often think of Wes Anderson movies as live action, stop motion French movies, mm-hmm. because that's kind of how they look. And, 
Uh, some of them, in fact, are stop motion, come to think of it, now that I say that. Parts um, of some of this one are stop motion. And when I watch, when, when Wes Anderson is in conversation or when I go see a Wes Anderson movie, man, like this is the way that I have recently started describing Wes Anderson movies as completely insufferable and just some of the most wonderful films ever made. Well, yeah, you uh, you and I talked about that on one of the previous uh, Wes Anderson shows where I I kind of do the same thing talking to to people about his movies because they seem like they're specifically not for me. Mm-hmm. And yet the the kind of properties of everything he is as a filmmaker, I mean, something that is so intentionally designed and um, and really just authentic to who he is. You know, mm-hmm. you have this sense of of who Wes Anderson is when you watch these movies. His voice comes through. It feels like you are watching the. Um, I don't know. It would it would steal a credit from the actors to call it a one man band or something. But that's how it feels, and I a think singular that, vision might yeah, be something yeah. I say or. Uh, yeah, you're you're very much watching somebody who's comfortable in their own style. They're executing their vision. So I think you, when you see one of these movies, you have to come to it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Now, he has a lot of fans who speak that language. This movie really does, you know, it just connects directly to them. And that's not, you know, it's not the language I'm speaking, but I have absolutely learned to watch these and take them out their terms like i'm entering foreign territory mm-hmm. when i'm going to one of these mm-hmm. and i have been so rewarded for that kind of shift in mindset yeah i think you know another another thing that i noticed pop up in both of these movies today is that there's kind of like you mentioned french cinema but there's kind of like a world cinema thing yeah, going yeah. on in both films, and we talked about that with um, you know Isle of Dogs previously, but we're borrowing like there's an Indian influence to it as well. The French stuff Which that kind I, of I, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> that's a question for the next film. <laughs> you know, it also kind of strikes me as someone who just watches a lot of whatever the fuck's on Criterion. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of a lot of the the influences of like the biggest piece of world cinema. If you look at that as kind of a curated collection, I guess the French stuff I notice are the the Prison Break movies. I mean, that part of it is huge. You know, mm-hmm. the like um, Le Trou, I think is the name of that. I don't know how I'd Americanize that. That sounded too much like I was going for uh, French pronunciation. But the I think it's the whole is basically what it's called. It's a it's a really good prison break movie. Doesn't matter. You know, or like the, there is this strain that runs through a lot of French cinema because France was occupied by Nazis. Mm-hmm. And so it is something that makes the films of France so much different, especially from a certain time than, uh, and I don't just mean like while they were fucking occupied, but like in the years that follow, people who made movies in France they thought about being occupied by the Nazis a lot. They mm-hmm. made a lot of movies that were about it either literally or metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, like what happens to the hotel, man? Like it's fucking invaded by Nazis. Mm-hmm. They're not called Nazis. This thing doesn't take place in France. It takes place in some country where they're invaded by some 
you know, authoritarian force, but you kind of have to call it out again because there is this authoritarianism, this anti-authoritarianism that is prevalent in both movies. The authoritarians become the, you know, the enemy of the films. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely, um, I think that the the Grand Budapest Hotel is actually really interesting because there's sort of like a ragtag team theme today too. But I feel like the ragtag team of the Grand Budapest Hotel is actually just the Wes Anderson cast like coming together and putting this movie on. Mm. Because that's that's one of the things that's also really just like insane to watch when you watch a Wes Anderson movie. I mean, it's become a gag in his trailers now, but the cast list is, is it's, I mean, it's a fucking joke. It is lousy with the greatest actors on earth and they show up and, and not only will they show up for, for almost no scenes, they'll show up <laughs> right, for which a is quarter crazy, of a right? scene, yeah. but they'll show up and they'll play against type. They'll make a clown of themselves. You know, it, it, Harvey it Keitel takes shaves back to, his head. Yeah, it takes me back to when George Clooney played a turkey on uh, on South Park. It's like, yeah. hey man, just to be a part of the thing, I just love the thing. I, whatever, however you want to mock me, mock me. But it's 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 great. The execution of it is always essentially perfect, but it's also really fucking distracting. And then, but his execution is always such that big reveal it's Jeff Goldblum. And then for like two minutes, nothing really important happens while the audience swallows Jeff Goldblum is now in the movie. You know, the most deliberate one of those is probably calling up the, uh, what's the thing called the like crossed keys or whatever. Right. But when they call the first one of those, it's Bill Murray. And the scene is so much like who you, who are you calling on the phone? I almost said, who are you going to call? But that's that's literally kind of the <laughs> gag, right? I mean, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, yeah, you call a phone and Bill Murray picks up and like the really yeah. why doesn't even need to, to read Yeah, so much as just like, oh, Bill Murray, who by the way, I mean, almost exclusively is just acting in Wes Anderson movies. I mean, that's not literally yeah. true, but that is so true yeah. of so many of these actors what I love about the actors that show up in these movies is it is, it's two kind of actors, I think. And this is very specific. But, you know, you could say, all right, it's character actors, which is true. It's a lot of character actors, a lot of, you know, Willem Dafoe's, mm-hmm. uh, Tilda Swinton, right? Mm-hmm. But what you basically get is not just character actors, but the character actors who are so at the top of their game that they could all lead movies if that's what they wanted to do, right? Mm -hmm. If Tilda Swinton wanted a movie to just be, this is just some film that's got Tilda Swinton, therefore you go see it. She's a famous enough character actor to have crossed that threshold. And Willem Dafoe's the same way. We're talking about people who play superheroes as well, Mm -hmm. right? So they're, you know, they have entered the mainstream, but then you also have... These uh, Jeff Goldblum, another example, and actually the mm-hmm. the superhero thing is kind of a good check on this because it's like they're so right. well known. Right. But Jeff Goldblum has always kind of been a character actor who just has a tier star power. Mm-hmm. And then you have these kind of a list actors who always seemed like, you know, someone like Adrian Brody, 
Mm -hmm. who was a little too much of a character actor to be embraced by the kind of A-tier stuff. So, you know, their their career path took a different trajectory. Yeah. And, um, like, who would be another? Edward Norton, actually. Another great example, right? Mm -hmm. Edward Norton had, like, that... Yeah, although superhero movie. (laughs) Right, right, totally. But you saw him walk that line, especially post-Fight Club, Mm -hmm. of, oh, this is, like, leading man potential. You're going to start seeing Edward Norton everywhere. Right. And then, you know, for whatever reason, what you hear about him or being challenging or whatever, too much of a fucking weirdo artist. That's such a boring conversation anymore. Yeah, it totally is. But to my point, he's too much of a weirdo to be a A-list actor, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. Is that Jason Schwartzman's the same way? Mm-hmm. Is kind of like was showing up in right. in big yeah. things, could like really live on that blockbuster level, but felt like mm-hmm. ah, this guy's probably a character actor at heart. Like that's you know, Owen Wilson right. fits into this. So there's sort of that yeah. mix of those two. Basically, the entire cast except for Ralph Fiennes. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, I don't know how Leah Cido fits into this. Uh, she was in the French Dispatch as well, but is like another one. I just happened to. She was in Blue is the Warmest Color. She's in a couple of the Bond movies. Yeah, like I've just been seeing her all over the place now too. I think you know she winds up in these movies, and there's just always a scene where. She speaks French really, really fast. I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. I'm too in my own weeds on uh, on that, but it just seems like she's got a a trick she's also pulling off that just kind of like you know bewilders and makes a scene of itself. Yeah, but God, that's a, that's a rundown of like I think we just talked about like twenty different cast members for these movies. I love seeing this though. I love seeing movies full of character actors because I just think. They are infinitely more fascinating than uh, just kind of seeing the the sort mm-hmm. of people who do a good job. And right. that's there's something about when I say character actor, the you know Dennis Hopper sticks out in my mind. Mm-hmm. Somebody who I can see in a movie, and it really doesn't matter what's happening in the movie, the scenario they're given, even how well the film's made. I'm just kind of curious when I see Dennis Hopper in a movie, like, how's he going to play this? Because mm-hmm. it's going to be kind of kind of weird. Is he going to play it a little crazy? Mm-hmm. Is he going to make odd choices? Does he, like, I, I remember um, uh, seeing Red Rock West recently, and he'll walk into yeah. a scene. You know, he has a couple scenes in that movie where it's kind of just like you're in a room, and then the door opens, and Dennis Hopper's character walks in. And you'll see him kind of just like walk around the room, maybe pick up an object, look at it. And you're right. just kind of like, yeah. like, I don't really know. Just the quizzical way he looks at things or like, what might he do with that? Is this part of the movie? Is this just him going around the set? And, you know, I feel that way about about all of these. Tilda Swinton yeah. does that kind of with like, who is her character sure. going to be? What's the makeup? Willem Dafoe, what's going on with his teeth? I mean, I don't know. There's mm-hmm. there's so much of that in this film. And it kind of plays right against what we were talking about with Wes Anderson, where he is a person who seems very in control. You're very much watching a movie that is him. And yet there's all of these kind of weird, weird choice actors in it. Well, and the so the reason to go back to what I said earlier too about why I think this is his best movie is because Wes Anderson is 
forced to walk a line in the way he executes his movies of limiting the scope of the film because of, of the way he executes the movies. Right. How do you mean? I, I feel, you know, it's because the movies take place in this sort of grandiose alternate universe of Wes and the Wes Anderson verse. Uh-huh. The stories can never really like span massive, have like this massive scope. It's, you know, it's Royal Tenenbaums where it's like, it's like this family in this house or Rushmore where it's like, Oh, it takes place at a school or Darjeeling limited. That's the fucking one I forgot. Oh, that yeah, takes place go. on a train. Um, or it's on a boat, you know, there, and, and I'm not saying, and, and, and the films still have this grandiose quality because Wes Anderson, but the grandiosity isn't matched by the setting because he is so intensely directing the movie that it mm. doesn't need, it can all take place on a fucking boat. It doesn't matter. The reason that I think Grand Budapest Hotel is his best film is I feel like he has managed to create a movie with as broad of a scope as his style executes. So you have these wide shots with mountains, you have a ski chase scene, you have all of these different things that that take place in, you know, there's 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 a backdrop of a war-torn country, um you know, and I just feel like I feel like as far as an achievement in making cinema, I don't think anyone in history or after will achieve what he achieved with Grand Budapest Hotel. It's visually literally perfect. His execution is, I, you know, to go back to the one of the things that I think is, is like so in, insanely Wes Anderson that I'm not sure people could ever really achieve is the ski chase scene because it's, it's basically like a dumb model of like, look at this ski and this sled uh, and it yeah. like swivels. Cause it's like poorly constructed <laughs> in a way, but like it's got that like Wes Anderson accent you, even uh, though it's just like a <laughs> dumb fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. like model. And like that scene is it's, I mean, listen, if it weren't Wes Anderson and it weren't Wes Anderson's eighth movie, that scene is trash. But because you know Wes Anderson doesn't not do it on purpose, it becomes like this unattainable scene of artistic value. And it's all funny with no punchlines, with no jokes, barely any dialogue. It's like a sincere action sequence. Yeah. And might I say also works as a fucking action sequence. Right. It's got a tension. You're sort of like, what the fuck's going to happen? So when you're designing that, you have to make it also work. Right. Right. It can't be so throwaway that, oh, the model might just fall apart halfway through. You really do have to do it well enough that, you know, the right elements work that a person can get lost, an audience member can get lost in, mm-hmm. in the reality of what's supposed to be happening. But yeah, you're right. It, it's got this kind of like purpose built homeliness to it or something. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like movie dodgy. Yeah. You know, it's like well designed to look right. Not even poorly designed, but just very arts and crafts, I guess. Because if it's done too well, you almost miss that it's models and stuff, right? Yeah, I feel like it's a scene that would have gotten like like a standing ovation in nineteen fourteen. <laughs> right. Like, how yeah, did they yeah. achieve this? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like <laughs> the I stuff like, from the next movie, right? It's like the early right. train films and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, it's man. funny. But okay, it's, we, it's, we it's still haven't logged to... this film, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's this Budapest hotel. It's grand. Lobby boy. And <laughs> that's important. Yeah. So there's a, there's, 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 um, there's a lobby boy and the hotel manager and uh, a wealthy woman dies and leaves an extremely valuable painting to the otherwise unimportant hotel manager. Uh, and then all these other people are trying to kill him about it. Yes. I mean, that's like the most watered down plot specific. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard for like anytime a movie has these sort of bookends, I kind of feel like, well, am I supposed to, should I be going, hey, you got to see this movie. It's about how this guy came to own a hotel. Like that doesn't sound right. You know what I mean? Right. You wouldn't watch Edward Scissorhands and go, you got to you gotta see this movie. It's about like this really old lady. She tells like a story before bedtime. You know, that that's not right. Right. But yeah. I do feel like if we navigated over to whatever fucking site, it would, it would be like a hotel manager sits down with Jude Law to tell his life story or something. <laughs> um, I wonder, you know, I say that because I wonder if it gives like narrative hook or something. I actually really, I don't know if this is just a moment or I'm thinking about this a lot with the kind of movies we're watching, but thematically, one of the things this movie goes back to over and over is this idea of, you know, how good it was before everything went to hell. The old life, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The um the they a use, simpler time. They use a fucking phrase at the end to talk about uh, the last connection to the vanishing world. You know, something like that, mm-hmm. where there is this competing notion of hanging on to the old ways of how something used to be, of when the hotel used to be grand, when uh, Gustav's uh, you know in his time in his uh, epoch. Mm-hmm. things were a certain way and lobby boys were lobby boys and you know this was the real time and weren't things better and then uh thinking about how now you know you just uh you have your jason schwartzman's in the lobby he's not doing a great job he doesn't even tend to people it's everything's just unraveled and that kind of competes with finding the happiness within your own time which is sort of the like he became one of the blonde women that he spent so much time with or one of the rich people that he spent so much time with mm-hmm. or why the hotel owner comes back, which is, you know, had nothing to do with all of these memories really that he told you about, but everything that kind of happens after the story where he's with his wife and kind of the memories that they form there and that ends up being you know, the the fucking rosebud of the movie ends up being like, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't, no, that wasn't that wasn't really in that story, I guess. We just spent a lot of time at this hotel. It meant a lot to me. But I see that challenge between staying stuck in the period of like when things were good and I don't know, I guess just allowing things to be good now or finding sort of the good in the present. I think about that a lot, obviously, because of fucking COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And how the world used to be before COVID and kind of how things are now. But I also think about it just with film. I mean, we look at this movie and when, when I saw The French Dispatch, when that came out, I got this feeling like this is a pre-COVID movie. We're done with these. Mm-hmm. This one snuck in because it was already going, but I cannot imagine today what Wes Anderson is, I'm, you know, the future will probably prove me wrong on this and I hope, 
But I can't imagine being Wes Anderson today, waking up and trying to get people to financially invest in, uh, I don't know, let's say $10 million. I have no fucking clue what these cost. A above $3 million movie, you know, mm-hmm. that isn't just like some fucking thing on Netflix. Mm-hmm. The whole mid-range or the, even the idea of like a high-range movie mm-hmm. that doesn't have a franchise, does it's just a guy in a vision Mm-hmm. It just seems like we do not make movies like that anymore. There's just been a everything is on pre-existing property. Everything. I don't. I don't mean to like get on here and decry this and become the fucking person from the movie, right? <laughs> but I do think about that a lot, and especially when I think about Wes Anderson. Sure, because we kind of grew up in this era, and we saw even as recently as 2014 that there were these madmen directors mm-hmm. and they they controlled what was made mm-hmm. because they had unique visions and we got to see their unique visions not that there were studios which it seems like we live in that system again now where it's like hey new movie by A24 just dropped hey new movie by Netflix just dropped and people start to talk about the you know neon the, please the, yeah right <laughs> right well I'm trying to throw some people under the bus here. I can't, you know, the movies are pretty good. I mean, all of these studios have good movies and bad movies. The point is that people talk about A24 like it's their favorite director. Oh, you've seen this guy, A24, mm-hmm. he makes these movies. It's like, it's not all right. one singular fucking thing. Right. But I feel like we're back in the studio days. So I myself, you know, as we navigate what modern times are like i do find myself falling into this trap mm-hmm. of going like ah the lobby boys used to be so much better <laughs> that everything's made with plastic now it's all garbage back in my day things were really they were made with coils and springs it worked for a hundred years well i think i mean the other movie too the fall is another example of like how how first of all how did this get made <laughs> but two like literally nobody would ever in a million years take the guy who did this cell and they're like, yo, travel around the world, make whatever movie you want. If it's really important to you, if it's really important to you that like the left half of one scene takes place in, in a very specific desert, but the right half takes place in a Canyon in Lebanon, 5,000 miles away. Shoot it that way. I heard a story about this. I was just going to say, all to the backdrop of old-timey movies. Let's talk about the other stuff, because it's kind of dubious, and I don't know. (laughs) That sort of makes me want to share it anyways, because just caution of the wind, you know? (laughs) Just me, you, and Podmanity, who's going to take me to task for this. Yeah. But I heard some crazy stuff about how this movie was made, and I don't know, maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about a logline first. Yeah, okay, so... um, this movie takes place in a in a Hollywood hospital in the heyday of motion pictures. <laughs> the heyday. Um, Again, we just invented people <laughs> falling from trains. That was and uh, an injured an injured stuntman befriends uh, a young girl whom he tries to coerce into helping him commit suicide. Uh, in order to do this, he weaves an elaborate tale. Uh, tying all the people from the hospital into the story to try and gain her trust and gain her sleeping pills. And that's it. That's the story. It's interesting to think if he weaves the story of all the people in the hospital or if he weaves a story to get the pills and she fills it with people from the hospital. She right? so the 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 story is his, but the the story we watch is her imagination. 
I think you're right. That's an important thing. So he tells the story, but we watch her imagined telling of the story. So in this way, it is one girl, one vision. <laughs> exactly. But, <laughs> yeah, we should. What, how old is this girl? What is she like? Eight? Is that? Am I clocking like that right? Seven, maybe. Okay. Seven ish. Well, thanks. Thanks for splitting out your hairs here. <laughs> you couldn't just be like, nailed it. <laughs> seven years old. Good job. You're like, seven she's, and, a, she's actually and six quarters. and a half. <laughs> um, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So, seven year old girl. Fine. I'm going to say seven year old girl if that's what makes you happy, Michael. So yeah, seven-year-old girl, crazy imagination, and that's a big part of the the makeup of the movie. And uh, before we get too lost in her world, I do want to cement just how kind of evil all of this is because I feel like that could really fly under the radar. Mm-hmm. This is ba- well, I want to say it's a drug addict, but it, it, he's not even a drug addict. He's a man who wants to die, and he's trying to make this seven-year-old his doctor death unwittingly, uh, just by taking advantage of her through creative storytelling. And that's just such a fucked up idea for, uh, for a movie. Right. But it makes the movie, you know, it makes it about the power of storytelling and it makes it about, I don't know, I mean, I just found myself thinking about how stories come together a lot because you see them kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, what would you say, like fighting over what the story is or... What is this movie dealing with? It's the, so you have a um, uh, reliable narrator and uh, an un, an under an underintelligent um, visualizer, right? Okay. So the sort of key thing we made a reference to it earlier in the in the movie. He tells this story as a uh, he mentions one of the characters is Indian, right? Mm-hmm. And he means East Indian, as in from India. However, or no, sorry, that's that's actually wrong. He means Indian, uh, like the Native Americans from like the types of Western movies he's in. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what he's talking about. Uh, but she imagines an East Indian man because she's familiar with this person. There's like a person that she knows, uh, and so that person gets sort of inserted into the story, uh, despite the fact that that's not what's going on. And sort of that dynamic is what uh, ends up creating a lot of the disparity between the story he's telling and the story we're seeing. And uh, it doesn't inform. So (laughs) I'll lead us back to the thing that you sort of teased. Um, The thing that's also insane to me is that you have this character. uh, He's telling the story, but she's imagining the story. Mm -hmm. And, the visuals of this movie are absolutely mind boggling. I mean, just, just like insane, the set, the, not the sets, the, the locations that they film and the way, the way that they set up these shots, it's so, you know, it's essentially the, the exact inverse of Wes Anderson, right? Where it's, it's like, well, there's no way I can build a grand Budapest hotel, but what I can do is find <laughs> a grand Budapest hotel and film my 34 second scene there so that you know that I actually did it. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, well, while we're on the, the storytelling bit of it, that's the part of this that I think makes it, you know, Tarsum's uh, look, not to, not to, put my nose up at the cells storytelling 
But it's very much of that that year. Everybody loves the visuals of the cell. It's fucking great. There's still nothing like it. But, uh, and I wish I saw that more in movies. I talk to people about mm-hmm. the cell all the fucking time. I'm always dragging them through like the eight minute sequence when when they first go um, into his head. It's the brain. like a, yeah, yeah. It, well, it's just such a great like it. It uses a lot of sort of music video imagery of the time, and it's just got a a lot of really like cool, breathtaking stuff that you you never saw executed at that high of a level. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have the sort of um, you know the the narrative of it. I feel like this honestly has such a complementary narrative for what works for Tarsim as a director. Because it is talking about filmmaking, it is talking about storytelling, and it's really, it's not just going, oh, what a tribute to storytelling. It's really kind of going, well, like, what if these two people were the writers, and they had to play off of each other? Or like the relationship a director might have for somebody else's written material. You know, she might be the person in there who's visually painting it and has to kind of ask the questions about like, well, in this scene, this is kind of what I'm imagining. And the writers there are going, no, that's not really what it is. I meant this, and and she's sort of like, well, could you mean this instead? Right. You know, in the way that she, I don't know, this little girl is so weird. It's like seeing a real human wander into a fictional film. Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> you know and, I mean? and that's that's honestly one of the things that is just like so mind blowing because it at no point does it feel like she's even like seen a script? Right, right, yeah. I well, mean, she's just asking these questions that are very, it's beyond audience surrogate. It, yeah. It really does just seem like somebody's kid. Yeah. Kind of picking apart the story and then oddly making it better for that. You know, like having the having the vision, playing the pretend, which also works so well because, you know, it is a child's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of the things we've talked about with the Rodriguez films and the sort of like not letting go of the child brain that does the creative painting, people in the film then have to contend, I mean, especially the lead has to contend with, you know, carrying on with a tiny talking audience member changing the story as it unfolds for, you know, for whatever that could be. And also, I mean, that the movie ends with so much fucking death Mm -hmm. and that he is so determined. That's why I mentioned him being such a dark kind of character in such a dark place. Right. That he's so determined to tell this like pain purging story Mm -hmm. about just how cold and cruel the world is and how in the end everybody fucking dies. And, you know, you you see that in that scene where they're kind of crying to each other over the ending of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever. You want, you want to hear a bunch of rumors and innuendo? <laughs> well, I mean, I can tell you some other things first and I'll lead you into that. So I think, um, you know, when it comes down to it, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about Tarsum Singh because we can't just like suck Wes Anderson's dick. And Who be is like, Tarsum Singh? What is Tarsum Singh? Tarsum Singh is, uh, he's, this, he's this filmmaker. He did a bunch of music videos. He does a ton of commercial work now. Um, he's directed a number of movies even after this, mm. uh, he did three movies after the fall, but he kind of, he kind of hit the, hit the film scene with the cell, uh, which is definitely the best Jennifer Lopez movie I've ever seen. And, um, 
in the top Vince D'Onofrio performances that exist. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is to say his entire career, but definitely. Um, and uh, and then he did The Cell, and these are both just extremely ambitiously visual films. You know, you mentioned uh, that he comes from music videos, but that really doesn't inform this. The only thing that that sort of informs is that he knows how to fucking make the most out of three minutes, and then he just strings <laughs> that together for two hours. Yeah. That's like all I can think about is 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 that as a as a music video director you have to tell an entirely visual story despite having any of the other normal like audiological cues um you can't really like use a script or anything so you have to be able to just like hold your audience visually often without coherent narrative this is it's insane to me that the fall is anyone's second movie yeah <laughs> yeah that's right. what's craziest to me about anything is that is that he did the cell and they went, I don't know, like what if we do this movie that spans space and time is not is not uh bound by any form of reality, uses solely striking visual uh locations, not sets, fucking locations. Yeah. And then, you know, has this framing device that is that is equally compelling. It's not like a frame, it's not like fucking um Princess Bride, where you're like, okay, shut up, Fred Savage. We're trying to watch Carrie Ellis uh, do some fun stuff. It's like a framing device that you're actually also compelled by because of this little girl, because of Lee Pace's performance. And the one thing I believe to be true that I heard, that I read, is that um, much of the little girl's performance was actually like sort of secretly filmed, like through holes in the walls. Uh, <laughs> That's fucking great. <laughs> to get like to like really get like these authentic where she would she would kind of do stream of consciousness stuff to the point where the um the e3 confusion on like killing himself uh, the pills on the morphine uh that was actually a mistake that she made in real life she thought that the e was a three and then tarson was like oh actually or the three was an e and tarson was like actually that's just a great device we'll just do that oh sure yeah yeah, well, you can tell watching your performance that there is like a real human reaction element to it. Yeah. Because it's beyond even like a different style of child acting or just, um, you know, we we have seen, it's kind of came out at a perfect time for it to be a huge movie. I mean, it definitely had the moment in its favor because there were, you know, I I don't want to compare it to other things, but like little human disappears into fantasy of a story to escape right. realities right. of the world or whatever is kind of like a thing we do in tiny female royalty type movies. <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we have kind of proven <laughs> this out as a thing you can do in movies. Yeah. But yeah, we've never really seen the little girl be so like a random human, you know, like just sort of a, a, um, what would you say? Civilian. A fly That's on the what wall, I was looking for. Uh, civilian. Yes. Yeah. Never seen someone be such a like a character in a movie show up like a civilian. There's a show that just uh started airing where it's it's like a detective story 
and then every or you know like a procedural cop drama or whatever. But every week it has. Yeah. This is Murderville. A, Are you about to talk about Murderville? Yes, yes. Well, I don't know in the future. You know how flash <laughs> in the pan these things are. It's a big show now, but in yeah. 16 weeks, yeah. no one will remember what the fuck it is. Yeah. But yeah, it's a celebrity guest every week. And they're apparently the idea is they don't know the story and they just have to kind of like run with whatever the fuck's happening. This movie reminds me of that. It reminds me of just like, it really feels like you're seeing somebody who won a contest or something and, uh, and their reactions to things. Yeah, I mean, I harp on this so much because it's crazy that it reads like somebody could be changing a story in real time when the fucking visuals seem to be the most like prepared. Right. You know, it seems, it seems to like you needed to lock your visuals 18 months in advance, not change them on the whim of a little girl. You know, it's just such a funny thing. The movie's made in 20 different countries. That's nuts. It purportedly cost, you know, 20, 30 million dollars, something like that. We're talking about a pretty big fucking movie. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I heard that I don't know if it's true is that it's entirely or at least most of it was funded by Tarsum. Wow. That this was not a studio, this was not investment, that this dude literally took his commercial piggy bank and just saved up, stored it under a mattress and paid the the 20 million or whatever, uh, you know, he's probably getting some, I mean, if we really want to break it down, there's probably a little private investment, a little bit of tax funds, whatever. But even the idea that, you know, a director who is on their second feature would put even just a sizable amount of money into their movie is mm -hmm. like, a, you know, he might put in some the sell money. Right. But if, if like you're saying, he's banging out commercials, then... Yeah then that kind of makes sense. But the idea was that, and again, like, I don't, I don't know. Do your own research. Could I have done research about this and gotten to the bottom of it? Yes. Was I even planning on talking about it? No. But I think the way they got so many different countries is that he would go do a commercial in a country and then call up the actors, fly them there, wow. and then wow. use the commercial crew to make you know, two minutes of the movie. <laughs> That's nuts. So That explains why there's so many sets, it settings would, too. I mean, it yeah. would, like the movie, it, it's almost the only theory that makes sense, right? Yeah, right? It seems like <laughs> such an outlandish, and I mean, I get that if you're on like Kevin Smith Clark's budgets. Yeah. But to be on like, the, those are the kind of tricks you pull when you're at, you know, a half a million dollars yeah. or even like a $10,000 movie. To pull that at the 10 million or 20 million or $30 million level yeah. is just like fucking nuts. Like it's just it's a crazy, crazy. It's crazy because you say that this is like a 20 to $30 million movie and you watch it and you go, that is insane that this was done for so little money. Well, yeah, because we see <laughs> movies today that are, you know, $200 million that seem right. to have as many effect sequences or whatever. But you're right. You look at them and it's like, well, what's the effect? Right. You know, they're not CG painting right. entire landscapes in the movie. They're just visiting a lot of places on earth. Again, it's that world yeah. cinema element we talked about. And uh, so it does kind of make sense that, you know, he wants to shoot and this place so he picks up a commercial gig there and then flies the actors out and yeah. shoots a scene. I it seems impossible, 
but you tell me it's, how you, how the fuck this movie got made. It's you know? baffling to me that that this movie has so much intent behind it, and then just completely it like came out, and like a few people were like, "Holy shit!" And then everybody else went, "Okay, well, I've forgotten." Yeah, well, there's there are things that just make movies like palatable to people, and other movies that that aren't. So it doesn't totally. You're telling me that you're telling me that there's not half the country who would go see the movie right now if I told them Charles Darwin got killed in it. <laughs> yeah, I also really appreciate that this movie just like brought Darwin in as a character and then just like <laughs> didn't make it all about you know that people don't don't that his life was in vain and nobody believes anything he says yeah. like, all these years <laughs> later. You know, it's like no 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 we're gonna tell a different story about how he had a. A monkey, yeah, that, like helped him out to you know solve riddles or whatever the fuck you know. Like that's that's pretty good. Yeah, but I mean, I hear all this stuff because when you're when you're like on the trail trying to get stuff made, you always hear the little stories of you sure. know how they pinched a penny on this movie like, or well, whatever. If you really need money, you could just do a commercial in Sudan. <laughs> but, but yeah, you start to hear wilder and wilder stories about like where people actually got their money. And like, this has always kind of been a, a sort of, I think I've literally told people I don't believe this, but it's been a while since I've seen The Fall and having just rewatched it, it was playing the, yeah. the whole time in my head. I'm like, I don't know how else they would have done this. Yeah, like, this has right. to be a real place, right? Like, how the fuck did they get there? Yeah. And, who, and just look at the credits, like who made the movie? There's not really that many... Like a movie this size, right. you just need huge conglomerates and bureaus of yeah. finance from different, you know, look at a, like a Gaspar Noe film that's made by 20 different countries and that'll kind of tell you like what that usually looks like. Right. Not the case here. All right. Well, we've gotten the mandatory Gaspar Noe uh, check of the day in. Cool. So I think it's we time to get it. out of here. That's, uh, we got a website. It's doublefeature.fm. Uh, we have a different website. It's called patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. Go there, give us some money, uh, keep our show alive, executive produce, like Charles these people. Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon. A huge thanks to the executive producers. A huge thanks to everybody who is on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash double feature. If you thought we were done with intense autourism, you were wrong. If you thought we were done with Tilda Swinton randomly <laughs> appearing in movies, you were wrong. Next time on Double Feature, we're going to cover Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer and what's his cos- Podus Cosmatus? <laughs> I can't think of his name. Uh, I always accidentally, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos. I always call him the same director as that, whatever, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. And Yorgos and Lanthimos. And Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, the favorite, which you won't believe it if you haven't seen other Yorgos Lanthimos movies, but maybe one of his least weird movies, but that might make it his weirdest movie. All of that and more next week on Double Feature. Watch more fucking film. Bye.